Jonah chapter 3, verse 1 to chapter 4, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I don't always read poetry, but when I do, I'm likely to read John Donne, the great English poet. John Donne was a Catholic when he started out. He went to Oxford and then Cambridge, but he never earned his degree there. He left to go into the Royal Navy. And he spent two years off the coast of Spain looking for pirates' treasure. He came home back to London and he ran off with the keeper, Lord's Keeper's 16 year old daughter. The Lord Keeper kept the Queen's finances for her. The 16 year old daughter's father said, No dowry for you. It angered King James I so much that he issued a decree that John Donne would work nowhere else in the country except in the church. So Dunn became a pastor. Later, he became the dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in London and one of the most popular preachers of his day. He wrote a number of interesting poems and sonnets. One of those is probably my favorite. It starts like this, batter my heart, three-personed God, and then ends with these lines. I am betrothed unto your enemy, Divorce me, untie or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. Something about that sonnet touches something inside of me. Those times when I feel as if my only hope will be if God comes in some dramatic way and rescues me from myself. He does something amazing to take me out of my funk, to draw me back to himself. Sometimes I want God to do that, to show up big time in my life, demonstrate something amazing, even as Dunn would say, to imprison me or enthrall me. The only problem is God doesn't do it that way, does he? In fact, the thing that John Dunn asked for, God will never do. God doesn't do that. He won't imprison us. 
He won't enthrall us. He won't ravish us that way. C.S. Lewis, another great English writer, put it this way, God cannot ravish, he can only woo. Now there's plenty of evidence for the way God works in the scripture. Maybe the clearest would be something like the incarnation. God shows up. What a time to show up. It seemed like it was the perfect time for God to show up in such a way that he would have an impressive show of force. He would convince everyone who he was. He would turn everything back the way it should be. By the first century in Palestine, the Jews were in an awful mess. God had not spoken through his prophets for 400 years. The Romans had invaded and taken over. God seemed to be nowhere in sight. It seemed like the perfect time for him to come and set things right and quiet all those claimers to his authority. And sure enough, God shows up, but it didn't go down the way everyone thought it might. Because when God shows up and born as a baby, he allowed himself to be squeezed out of the inn and born in a dirty stable or in a cave. God allowed himself to be cared for as an infant by a human being who had to cleanse him and clothe him and feed him. He allowed himself to live and to die mostly misunderstood, rejected, abused, unrecognized. In fact, far from overwhelming the world, God showed up in Jesus, and for the most part, for most people, it looked as if the world had overcome him. And it's not like God can't do those things. I mean, he's done some pretty spectacular things on occasion, hasn't he? He was able, of course, to flood the whole earth with a big flood that surely got everyone's attention. He called down fire and brimstone of Sodom and Gomorrah and wiped them out. He brought down plagues on Egypt to show Pharaoh who was really in charge and to let his people go. He resurrected Christ from the dead. And we, as believers in him, are, are waiting for the final days, whenever they come, when we'll see spectacular things, things that we will be hard to believe. And yet, as someone has said, God's greatest acts thus far have not been the showy things, but the simple acts of kindness and love. Maybe that's because God is so secure in who he is. He's never afraid. He's never fearful. He always operates out of strength, not out of weakness. He never panics. He never worries. He doesn't do something violent just to get people's attention. He is so strong that he can even appear to be weak. But maybe we feel like John Donne. We'd like him to show up and show up in such a way that it's undeniably his showing up. Do something in our lives that undeniably he did. Show this unchristian world around us undeniably that we're on the right side. Maybe that's what we want. And we don't understand why he won't send down awful judgment on all of those who are rebellious and arrogant and flout his standards in our world. The reason God doesn't ravish us, the reason he doesn't show up the way we might think, isn't, I don't believe, because he's satisfied with the things of the world, isn't because he's necessarily satisfied with the state of our individual lives. The scripture is clear that he is profoundly interested in those things, the scripture is clear that God's ultimate purpose will come about, and that purpose will be that Jesus Christ is the very center of everything. It's very clear that that's where the whole world is heading. But today, 
it doesn't look so clear that Jesus is the center of everything in our world. It would seem that maybe God is as interested in it happening, but also interested in how it happens. He's interested not only in the ends, but the means as well. Jonah chapter 3, we read about the prophet Jonah showing up finally to do what God had told him to do. If we read the first two chapters, we know that God sent him on a mission and told him to go to Nineveh, and instead he goes the exact opposite direction as shown on the map, and it's not like just he goes a little ways, he goes a far ways, or attempts to anyway. He is going to run from God's will, he's going to do the exact opposite of what God wants him to do. So he heads off in the wrong direction, he boards a ship, he survives a storm, he gets thrown overboard because he knows it's the only way to save the crew and the captain who ask him, what have you done anyway? He ends up in the belly of a great fish, spends three days and three nights until that fish literally vomits him up on land. And from there he finally finds his way to Nineveh. And when he gets there, he preaches what has been called possibly the shortest prophetic message ever preached. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Five Hebrew words transliterated into that English sentence. What a short message. Now Nineveh, we know historically, was a pretty wicked place. It was the largest city in the world for a season the ancient Assyrian city in Mesopotamia, located in modern-day Iraq, just across the Tigris River from the city of Mosul, which has been in the news yet again this week. Underneath the sands there are buried the ruins of Nineveh. In its heyday, it was an important city. It sat right on the major trade route between the Indian Ocean and the Mediterranean Sea. Everybody came through Nineveh. It was a great place to be a merchant. It was a great place to be religious. They worshipped wonderful gods there and goddesses, particularly the goddess Ishtar. It was a religious kind of environment, but more than anything else, Nineveh was a militaristic city. The king made sure of that. He was a militaristic king. He loved to go out and conquer other people, like those Hebrews who lived down in Palestine. He would go and conquer cities and peoples, and when he did, he often said this about his conquerors, those he conquered, he said this about one city, quote, its inhabitants, young and old, I did not spare. And with their corpses, I filled the streets of the city, unquote. Nineveh's artwork showed the spoils of war or the military might in stone relief panels that are still in existence today. The city is described in Jonah chapter 3, verse 3, as an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth, which probably meant it would take a person three days to wander all the way through all the neighborhoods of the city. No wonder Nineveh is described as worthy of destruction. No wonder Jonah probably thinking about time they get what's theirs. But something happened. Jonah shows up, walks into the city a day, preaches this five-word sermon. Just five words. And it's, it's not a very pleasant sermon, really, this prophetic message. Forty days and Nineveh shall over, be overthrown. It's, it's not a gospel message. It's the kind of message we would get when the slip comes our way, 40 days and you're without a job. 
or when our spouse says, 40 days and I'm leaving you. Or the doctor says, it's been 40 days and the cancer has returned. That's the kind of message Jonah preaches. And yet, God takes those words and turns them into arrows that go into the very consciences of those people who lived in Nineveh. And they do something that no one would ever expect the Ninevites to do. They repent. They turn. They believe in God. It says the people of Nineveh, verse 5, believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And then it's worth reading what follows after that once again. Chapter 3, verses 6 to 9. It says the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his house, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. This great king who was so militaristic, who would conquer everybody and everything in his way, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God, let everyone turn from his evil way from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger. We may not perish. Revival breaks out in Nineveh. Who would have ever guessed it? God spares the city. God turns from his fierce anger. There is simple faith there. It's not real mature. It's we're in trouble. We better do something. We believe the message. Let's repent. That's not necessarily the most mature faith you've ever seen, but it's real faith. And it's real repentance because repentance is always at the heart of, mo of the movement of people toward God. Many centuries later, an ocean away, a small sleepy village in Virginia called Williamsburg. December 16th, 1739, the great English evangelist George Whitfield visits the city and is invited by James Blair to preach at Bruton Parish Church. And so he does. George Whitfield, who triggered what we call the first great awakening in America, who historians suggest may have spoken to as many as 10 million people in his life, from England to the colonies. A man who would preach 10 times a week, mostly outside, to crowds as large as 30,000 and be heard without a microphone. A man God used to trigger a great revival, and he preached at Bruton Parish and triggered revival in Williamsburg. And part of the religious revival that he preached was a challenge to the formality of religion of the day. And he said, what we really need to do is repent and cultivate a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The first great awakening in America through men like George Whitfield and John and Charles Wesley changed the landscape of the colonies. People turned to God in repentance it was an amazing thing because repentance has always been at the heart of the movement of people toward God. Same thing is true years before that. In the 16th century, when a, 
a German monk become professor, issued 95 what he called theses, put them on the door of the Wittenberg Church, the first two of which said this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he meant that the entire life of believers should be a life of repentance. The word cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance, that is, confession and satisfaction as administered by priests. See, the issue is whether or not our forgiveness is triggered by acts of penance that we do under the direction of a priest after confessing our sin and then being admonished to do certain things to earn God's favor, or whether forgiveness was really a matter of faith and repentance, our turning to God and believing that he forgives. But his statement is significant. The entire life of believers should be a life of repentance. That goes somewhat against what many of us have thought about repentance, I think. We tend to think of repentance as that thing you do when you come to faith. You repent and you believe, and you become a Christian, you follow Christ. So I repented many years ago when I became a believer, right? Yet Luther suggested we need to repent all the time. Our life should be a life of repentance. Why? Well, for one thing, even in my best days, even in those days if I were to go to bed and before I do bow and say, Lord, did I sin today? Can you remind me? I don't know that I did. Even in those days, I'm living life so far from the excellence of God's glory that I'm always in need of repentance. And second thing maybe is the fact that revival can happen. People can come alive and awaken But it doesn't last forever. I mean, there's a reason why the first Great Awakening was followed not too many years by a second Great Awakening in our land because it was needed. There's a reason why the city of Nineveh, 150 years after they repented at the message of Jonah, would be literally destroyed because of God's judgment on them. They had forgotten to continue to turn to God. A life of repentance really involves a start And it's not an easy one. And we have to do it to repent. And we have to take what used to be called the sinner's place. Nobody likes to take the sinner's place. That's the place where you admit that you're a sinner. That you admit that you're not in charge, even though you want to be. You admit that you're not God. It's not a nice place to be. We don't like to go there. Some people never go there. Others will go there once and never go back again. It's where healing starts. It's where help starts. It's the start for a ministry like Celebrate Recovery in the chapel here that we have, where people with hurts, habits, and hang-ups get together and, and get help. And it starts with that very first step, admitting our need, admitting that, no, we are not God. That's where the sinner's place is. And we have to start there, giving up our control or our attempt to control ourselves and everybody else. Remember, Jonah's message to Nineveh was simple, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And my guess is part of the reason Jonah was so mad, we see in chapter 4, verse 1. In fact, if we were to read further, God sort of talks to Jonah about his anger, and twice Jonah says, I'm mad enough to die. God says, really? (laughs) Really, Jonah? You're that mad? I'm mad enough to die. Why is he so mad? Well, one thing, he's mad that Nineveh got rescued by God's word. He wanted Nineveh to be destroyed. But I think there's a second reason. 
And that as a prophet, he came and delivered a message that in 40 days, Nineveh would be overthrown. And yet at the end of the 40 days, Nineveh was not overthrown. It was forgiven. And there goes Jonah's reputation as a prophet. Didn't come true. God relented from his anger and didn't destroy the city. I know that feeling of reputation being so important in those times when you do something or someone else says something about you that questions your reputation. And you know that feeling, I bet, too. When you feel like you need to defend yourself and you need you have to sort of retrench and make sure you're okay. When I find that my reputation is at stake or I'm worried about it, there's some questions that help me through it. These are the questions, maybe they'd help you. First one's this, what does your heart really want? And then what are you really longing for? Is it recognition or fame to be well-known or to look good in the eyes of others? Which leads maybe to the ultimate question. It's the question that Jesus asks all of us at times like that. It's this, am I not enough? Am I not enough? Missionary Eric Brewer put it like this, what does my hungering after all these other things say about Jesus? What arrogance it is to say to the Son of God, you are not enough. I need something more, and I know best what that something is. In unbelief, my heart wanders off to look for life apart from Jesus. So what does repentance look like in a situation like that? Well, we might think it looks like, well, just stopping worrying. I won't worry about my reputation, or I'll stop being envious of someone else who's getting more acclaimed than I am, or I'll just stop being jealous of someone else's gifts. And that's, that can't be it. Repentance can't just be that. That's like cutting off the tops of the weeds but never getting down to the roots because of the roots of that problem are pride, our pride. If we're going to root out those roots, if we're going to get into our pride and dig it out and turn from that kind of sin, we need more than just some willpower to do it some resolve that I'm not going to be jealous or envious anymore. Or you, you put the, the sin of choice in that statement. We need something greater. And I think we can learn from the, the wonderful Scottish theologian and pastor and Puritan of centuries ago, Thomas Chalmers, who wrote a sermon that he delivered and then turned into a book and a pamphlet distributed called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And the whole point that Chalmers was making, I think, is a valuable one. And that is, if we want to get rid of an old affection, an old sin that clings to us, we need more than just resolve to turn from it. We need something better to turn to. That an old affection is more easily dealt with if it can replace it with a new affection. The expulsive power of being captured by something more. What is that something more that needs to capture us? It's the value of Jesus, our Savior. That he is truly enough for us. So when our hearts are set on Christ, and when Christ is enthroned in our hearts, something like spiritual heart surgery happens. And what the law could not do, the gospel does. And we are truly transformed from the inside out. Because in his loving kindness, Jesus leads us to repentance. And we respond in faith to his initiative by turning. 
the end of chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, we see a continual turning. People turning to God, God turning from anger. Repentance, the heart of movement. People toward God, God toward people. By faith, we lay hold of his cleansing blood, the forgiveness Jesus offers, his approval, his commendation of us. We are called children of God. He delights in us. And when we do that, we find that indeed Jesus is more than enough for us. And that moves us out again to mission, to do the things that God has called us to do, to share the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of the cross in our community, in our nation, to the ends of the earth. We bring a message that there is someone worthy of our adoration, and his name is Jesus. He's worthy of our praise because he was raised from the dead. It's a mission most of us haven't run from the way Jonah did. What Most of us haven't turned the opposite direction to get away from that calling. It's probably more likely that most of us simply drift off into other things, other distractions, other important things even. But movement back to God always brings a simple turning, so maybe it's time for all of us to simply turn back to God living lives of repentance. So as Alex comes with the band to lead us in our final song, as we sing to Jesus and invite him in, as we say to him, I come, I come, let's remember that he is the one who draws us to himself. So if you feel drawn to Jesus this morning, come to him in repentance and faith, knowing that Jesus truly always is enough.